This is the Mealtime Magic and Mayhem podcast. I'm Trisha Clark, your host, cooking coach, and kitchen mentor. We're here to talk about all things food, wine, travel, cocktails, and mealtime memories. So many memories are made around the table. We all know mealtime can be stressful, full of chaos and mayhem, but it's also the universal connector, a catalyst for communication and connection, and a time to create magic and memories. So many of our memories are tied to food, and I can't wait to share some of those stories with you here. I'm here to share ideas, inspiration, and stories to help you experience mealtime with a dash of magic and just a sprinkle of mayhem. You can expect new episodes weekly, including a mixture of interviews, personal stories, and some fun conversations about our adventures and misadventures in the kitchen and around the table. I hope you walk away feeling inspired to try something new in your kitchen or around your table to create more connection with your friends, family, and beyond. Thanks for being here. Welcome to another episode of Mealtime Magic and Mayhem. I have been super excited to have this conversation with Tressa Jamil. She is a self-taught chef, recipe developer, the voice behind the food blog, The Jamil Gar, a blog dedicated to sharing healthy international recipes and tips and tricks to make cooking less intimidating for newcomers. Her relationship with food has been complicated, but in the last few years, she's been cooking and creating recipes for the world, and it's led her down a path of healing after loss and struggling with health issues. So just in reading what I know about Tressa and the short conversations we've had, I know that we have a lot in common, and I'm so excited to have you here. So welcome to the Mealtime Magic and Mayhem podcast. Yes, thanks for having me here. So your blog's name is Jamil Gar, and kind of tell me the origin of the name. Sure. So it goes back to its start. So I guess I should begin there. My blog was never meant for public consumption originally. As you mentioned, I'm a self-taught chef. And I started cooking and people started enjoying my meals. And then COVID happened and the world shut down. And so the influx of messages and emails, hey, can I get that recipe you made for blank? And so I never wrote down my recipes before and I needed a place to record them. And so I started typing them into Google Docs. My husband saw me one day and he's a software engineer and he's like, why are you doing that? Then you have to send them the Google Docs. So why don't we just create a website for you to post all your recipes and you can just share them with friends? So that's how it began is just a way to share it with friends and family during lockdown. And the name actually comes from our Wi-Fi router, which is really funny. We called it the Jamil Gar, which means Jamil is our last name and Gar means home in Urdu, which is my husband's language because he's from Pakistan. And so it's Jamil Home and it's the name of our Wi-Fi router and now the name of our blog. I love it. But when you think about it, it's perfect, right? This was your healing journal, basically, that you're sharing with the world, which is yes. pretty incredible and vulnerable. But it's all about what's taking place in your home in the middle of lockdown. Like, I can't really think of a better name. I think that's incredible, no matter how it started in terms of the Wi-Fi router name. But it's perfect. And it really means so much and so close to what you do. Right. And honestly, I feel like it sums up the way that I feel about food and how I feel about entertaining and wanting to invite people to my table. And I mentioned this on the About Me part of our blog that... I feel like there's so many conflicts that could be just resolved by sitting down and sharing a meal together and figuring out that we have more in common 
then we don't. And that was also another thing that I processed through during the lockdown with so much divisiveness happening. And so Jamil Gar just seemed fitting. So we stuck with it, even though it's not super intuitive for a food blog name. <laughs> you know, as long as people find you and they love your food, I truly believe that we bring in the people we're meant to by the energy that we share. And you're sharing that. And I'm so glad that we connected. We have so much in common when it comes to how we feel about food and how we feel about entertaining. And to me, a shared meal really is, I call it the cornerstone of the home, but I don't just mean for my family or like the whole domesticated goddess concept to be when you said so many difficult conversations or conflicts can be solved around the table. It's so true. I mean, I would say 90% of our difficult conversations as a family are start around the table because we're already breaking bread together. There's already common ground. There's already connection. There's already love communicated through that first bite of food, right? Yep. Well, we're already diving in, but I want to back up for just a second because I love to start all of my interviews with a fun icebreaker question. Table topics are a big part of what I do to encourage families to connect and have different conversations at the table. And so I love hearing all the different answers. So your question today is if you could invite anyone alive or deceased to dinner, who would it be and why? Can I cheat a little bit and have two? Of course. Okay. So first of all, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but I would have my mom who passed away definitely at the meal first off because I miss her, but also I think she would be really excited to know that I was sharing my recipes in the capacity that I am now. I think she'd be really proud. And also she'd be proud of my cooking because she really saw it from the beginning and how absolutely horrific it was to <laughs> what it's become. And We've come a long way. And then the second person is Anthony Bourdain. Oh, okay. Yeah. I love everything about him. And he's so opposite of who I am as a person, but I love the way that he would sit down and communicate with people and really like get to the heart of their story. And he always went to like obscure places and small little like dives. And I'm so into that. And like when my husband and I travel, we love to go off the beaten path and find the little spot and talk to the locals and really get into their stories and hear why they started the restaurant and what's their passion behind the meal. And Anthony Bourdain just did that so well. And also he just had the coolest voice and communication style. And you're right. I think he shared that it's about really connecting with people versus I ate at so-and-so, the most prestigious restaurant. It is about the connections that you make through food and then those stories. Because so often when you go to those smaller communities and you're off the beaten path, those businesses are more a labor of love and their livelihood, but they're not just in it for the business. They're in it because they want to share that love to their food and they have something special and unique they feel they have to offer. And I think that's pretty incredible. And you tap into that with what you're sharing in your blog, which is pretty incredible, which leads me to my next question. Tell me a little bit about your journey as a self-taught home chef and how it led you to create this food blog. I know you've told us a little bit, but tell me about your journey as a self-taught chef. What inspired you to get started on that journey? Like I said, mainly it was my husband who kind of just pushed me into the technology aspect because he's always like, 
we need to make this more convenient and technology is always more convenient. So we're going there. But (laughs) going back to how I taught myself how to cook, we just didn't cook in our home. And bless my mom, bless my stepdad, they really tried. And the interesting thing is that my stepdad went to culinary school at one point in his journey. He did a lot of different jobs out of college, but he went to culinary school. And I don't know if it was like the lack of income because we grew up pretty, I would say pretty poor. We were in poverty range. So that was probably part of it. And then we also lived in a very rural area. And so access to fresh foods, access to food in general, just led us to cook everything out of a box. I joke with people and say that I didn't have like fresh vegetables until I was 16. And I started buying them on my own because I was like, I have to play softball and I need to be healthy and I can't keep eating frozen and boxed foods only. And so that's kind of where my journey began. I got my own little like mini fridge and put it in my bedroom when I was 16 and started buying my own groceries because I wanted to eat salad and fresh, fresh food instead of, you know, everything out of a can or a box. And I'm not knocking any of that. Obviously it nourished me most of my life, but that's kind of where my story began. So, okay. That's so interesting. So I was a very picky eater as a kid and everything I ate was in canned or in a box. And it wasn't because my mom didn't cook or wasn't a good cook, but I wouldn't eat anything that she cooked. And so my journey to teaching myself how to cook didn't start till I was in my 20s. I don't even think I had fresh vegetables till I was in my 20s. Not because they weren't available, but because I was too stubborn to try them. So you would have loved my house. I (laughs) probably, yeah. Kids cuisine and SpaghettiOs, man. I lived on that. That's what we ate. Primarily (laughs) like hamburger helper. We at least had spaghetti once a week. I call them white people tacos because it's just like that ground beef you know, yeah, seasoning, hard shell. We had that at least once a week. (laughs) So anyway, not knocking their food. It was tasty. It was what they could provide, but I just wanted to experiment and see what was out there. And so I started cooking for myself and that was around the same time I was getting towards the end of high school and then transitioning into college. I moved down on my own when I was 18 got my first apartment and really started trying to cook. And that was also the onset of Pinterest. And Mm. so I got very lucky that the timing (laughs) lined up there. And so (laughs) I got to try all these cool recipes and I failed at most of them. And my sisters are probably going to listen to this podcast and they'll be laughing because they tasted all my atrocities (laughs) that I quote unquote created. And so, yeah. And then... As I just kept trying and failing and failing again, I started to find kind of like a a rhythm. And then I started working with international students post-college, got to meet people from all over the world. That's actually how I was introduced to my husband, who's from Pakistan, and started tasting international cuisine. And I was like, wow, there's really more than hamburger helper out there. And <laughs> I want to taste all of it. And so, yeah, I just dived into other cuisines and learning how to cook from my friends from all over the world. It tapped into a part of me creatively that I didn't know existed and I didn't know wanted to come out. And I feel like that's how I get to express my artistic side is through food and 
cooking food from all over the world. I feel that to my soul for growing up a picky eater and getting a late start on cooking. Like to me, exploring all those world flavors is where it's at. And when you're traveling and you're eating with the local people, like you just really do get a different sense and a different meaning. But it's also just incredibly interesting, I think, to learn about all the different spices and combinations and how some foods can be very similar and yet very different. My husband and I were just joking around last night about the fact that we were eating like what you might consider a sheet pan chicken gyro. And I was like, you know what? These are really just the Greek version of a fajita. Mm -hmm. Right. And as you think about across cuisines, a lot of things have a lot of similarity, but it's the combinations of the spices that they use that really end up changing it. And I think we have a tendency to just really make it overcomplicated. When you think stir fry, you think Asian. Well, again, kind of their version of a fajita without the wrap, right? Like everybody has a version that's something similar and then they're called something different. So they sound so intimidating. Right. Well, and that's the funny part of running kind of an international blog and exposing my primarily, I would say a lot of my subscribers to my blog are actually from the Midwest Mm -hmm. and judging from the names, I would guess probably white. And so I think that was like some of the hesitation of a lot of my friends to make my recipes because they're like, that looks so complicated. And I'm like, no, it's really not. If you just start cooking it, it's similar to stuff you've made your entire life. It just has different spices. And once you, I mean, that's the hardest hurdle is acquiring all the spices and stuff like that. Yeah. I'm a big fan of, I mean, I love to make my own, but I also recognize there was a time in my life with young children and recognize that for many of my clients and the people I speak to, those pre-made spice blends are great in a pinch. Don't go out and buy 20 different spices the first time you've made curry. Like, don't do it. You don't even know if you like it yet, right? I love to cook Moroccan food. And so like tagine is just really kind of, it's a vessel, but it's also kind of another word for stew, right? And so we put all these fancy words to it and then we're like, oh, beef bourguignon. Yeah, it's delicious and it has its French name, but it's stew with red wine. Right. And I think we can really simplify it for people, but I think we've taken some simple things and made them sound really complicated. It's true. So on that vein... What is one of your favorite international dishes or culinary experiences that you think everyone should try at least once in their lifetime? Oh, goodness. That's a good question. I mean, my favorite thing to cook and my favorite thing to learn how to cook was probably Pakistani karhai, which is a tomato chicken curry. We'll just put it. That's like the best way to put it. Yeah, it's just a base of like the cooking down tomatoes very slowly. And normally a lot of like, especially Indian curries, Pakistani curries, South South Asian curries, they start with onions, garlic, and ginger. Mm-hmm. And then you add tomatoes if you want to. A karhai is very specific because it's primarily tomato and that's where you get most of the flavor. And so you really just like slow cook down those tomatoes until they become just a sauce essentially. Okay. Um, And then you add your spices, you add your chicken, or in our family, we do a lot of goat or lamb. I love braised goat. I know people are probably like, it's goat. Yes. Try it. I know. I never ate it growing up. I was never exposed to it until 
I was in my late 20s, but now it's like something that I eat all the time. And it's so funny to watch my kids who are obviously half American, half Pakistani, (laughs) and they just go to town. Like that's like their favorite. They just dig in there with their bread and eat their goat curry. Oh, that's amazing. Okay. So pronounce it for me. Pronounce it for us again. It's Pakistani Karhai. Karhai. All right. So everybody try Karhai and don't be afraid to try goat. And it could be pronounced Karhai, like with a D in there as well, just depending on, because, you know, India and Pakistan, there's so many different variations of the same dish, but that's the pronunciation. (laughs) I I love that. Uh, Now I'm going to have to try it. You're going to send me a recipe. Maybe we could post a recipe for that in the show notes. Yes, let's do it. Perfect. All right. So for me, cooking can often be a form of self-care. I find it both therapeutic and challenging. How has your relationship with food evolved over the years and how has it helped you cope with some of those difficult moments, such as the loss of your mom and health struggles? Yeah, I'll start off by saying, and you mentioned this in the introduction that food has been complicated for me. Mm -hmm. I exist in a bigger body, which makes my relationship with food very complicated just because of society and what society says about food. And so Growing up, I was very restrictive about food and very limited on what I was allowed to eat or what I thought I should eat because of the body that I existed in. And as an adult, I still try to be health conscious, especially because I do have so many allergies, autoimmune disease, (laughs) things like that are affected by the food that I take in. But experiencing freedom in my 20s and my 30s with food and being able to experiment and see the joy of food and like the love and the intentionality you put into food has healed my relationship with food. But then on the reverse of that, I feel like food has also been a way for me to heal after losing my mom. She passed away in 2018 and it was really hard. And I had lost my dad in 2010 from cancer and then my mom in 2018. And I felt like after I lost her, it's like all the waves of grief kind of compiled and it felt very heavy and I didn't feel like I could continue is the best way to put it. I was very depressed and in a lot of ways, I'm still working my way out of that. I found myself not being able to be me anymore. Like I didn't know how to love my husband the way I had prior to my mom passing away. I didn't know how to play with my children the way I had played with them. And they were very little when my mother passed away. And so I just found myself not feeling like I could communicate to them in the way that I wanted to anymore. I felt like I couldn't communicate to the world the way that I wanted to anymore. And I had so much love to give them but I just didn't know how to do it anymore. Like I didn't know how to love. I didn't know how to express that. And I was just very shut down. And like I said, I'm still working my way out of that. Therapy is really great. So So would you say that food has kind of been one of your ways to communicate then when you use words? Mm -hmm. I didn't realize it until I started the food blog. And I was like, why am I so focused on this? Like what, what drives me to keep putting out these recipes and what drives me to keep sitting at my computer and trying to work on my food photography and all these things? Cause I don't really make money right now 
full disclosure, this is just a passion project that's working towards that. But I realized in the process that I didn't know how to tell my family I loved them in the way that I had, but by sharing this meal that I slaved over and I put intentionality into, and I thought about it and I thought about what they love and I thought about what they didn't love. And I was able to create this plate for them. And in my own way, share my love with them through food has been really healing, has been a way to communicate when I felt like I didn't have the words anymore. I think that's an incredible message because one of the things I work really hard to teach and work with my clients on is you have to find it in you, what you enjoy cooking and what it means to you and what comes easy to you. Because when you can tap into that and find what you really enjoy about it, that's how you bring your best foot forward to the meal in order to share that moment and create that conversation. If we're cooking from that depressed, angsty, stressed out space, that does come through not only in the flavor of your food, but in the energy at the table. Like energy, energy is contagious. And it's just beautiful that you found this way to communicate in that time of struggle. And again, I think we can often forget that food, we so often think of food and cooking as one more thing we have to do. It's really something we get to do. It's an opportunity to connect with our people. And that's so core to what I do and really why I feel like we connected so quickly, even through messenger, right? And an email. I lost my mother in 2016 to cancer and it's hard. And in many ways, losing her is what prompted me to start this business. Short story, and I'm going to get back to asking you questions. She sold Pampered Chef for 20-something years, and I watched her inspire women all over the world and help them figure out how to get dinner on the table. And she did it through home parties and kitchen gadgets and, and great kitchen tools. And so I thought I would do that for a while because my mom did it. And that was a way we had a she's an amazing woman, my rock, but we also in some ways had a very complicated relationship. And so it was my way of carrying on the very best parts of her. And along that process, I discovered that I wanted to create something different, but it was still very much, it started out as a way to, as a way to honor her and heal and work through that process. And so it's amazing that food can be that and food just gets unfortunately labeled as good or bad and kind of gets a bad rap. And it really can be a healing and meditative process. Like it's a huge part of my self-care. And I gather from what we talk about, a huge part of yours as well. Yeah, I mean, then my husband's really into running and he always talks about, people ask him like, how do you have the time to run? And he's like, well, I prioritize it because I care about it because like it matters to me and it matters to my body and I feel better when I run because he, he runs a lot. He'll run like, he's like, a runner runner. And so he sets aside the hour or two to go running and that confuses people. And I feel like the same has been true for me with cooking is a lot of my friends who are also moms of young children are like, how do you have the time? And to be honest, there's nights that I don't, but when I do, it is a form of self-care. It's setting aside this time to, to prioritize something that matters to me, that feels good to me, that's nourishing to me. And then obviously I get to nourish my family as well. And that's, that's a bonus. Right. I mean, how cool is it to find not only a hobby, but something you're passionate about that you love that feels good to you, right? It is part of you taking care of yourself and putting yourself first. 
but that also benefits your family. I found that most of my hobbies have fallen that way, whether it's scrapbooking or crafting or cooking, like traveling, like all of my hobbies in some way, shape or form light me up first, but they also all have benefited my family. I haven't necessarily had to make the choice to deprioritize them to do what lights me up, which is beautiful. All right, a couple more questions and we're going to tie this up, but I really think we're going to have to do a part two. I really think we're going to have to do a part two. I feel like we have more to talk about when it comes to international food, but I want to ask you one more question. And then I really want you to tell us where everybody can get in touch with you, hang out with you, follow you, all that stuff on your blog. So how would you, I mean, you're, you really cover the importance of trying unfamiliar recipes and embracing cooking as that form of art and creativity. What are a couple of tips you would give others to encourage them to be adventurous in the kitchen, explore those new flavors and cuisines without the intimidation? Absolutely. That's a good question. I think my biggest recommendation, and this comes down to maybe my philosophy about food in general, is to find a friend. Like find a friend that is from a different culture than you. Find a friend who grew up in a different area of town than you, because chances are they cooked meals that you haven't made. And there's something that, that lights them up when they, you ask them, what's your favorite meal that your family has cooked, whether they're, you know, from Saudi Arabia or they're from Sacramento, like there's something that their family has made that makes them excited and make that thing. And I feel like that's been the most useful tool Mm -hmm. is just working side by side with somebody. And I know that that's not always possible. This isn't like something that you would do on a Tuesday when you have soccer practice, or whatever. <laughs> but, but really prioritizing relationships that you do have and being like, Hey, can you teach me how to cook that thing that your family really loves to make? And I've learned so many cool recipes that way. But beyond that, I love cooking through cookbooks and that's kind of where I started. And so I just found countries that I was like, maybe I want to travel there. And this was prior to meeting my husband. And obviously after meeting him, I was like, man, I should probably learn how to cook Indian food. But even prior to that, I would find the cookbook and I would be like, hey, I want to go to this country one day. I really love the flavors from this kind of cuisine. I'm going to try to cook through this cookbook. And that's what really got me started on that. But I think just finding a friend who will teach you. And I'm really lucky to live with my mother-in-law and my in-laws live with us in our home. And so she gets to teach me all the tips and tricks of how to really cook authentic Pakistani and Indian food. And that's really cool because I feel like you get that relationship piece and you get to Mm -hmm. hear why that particular recipe is significant. Because one thing I've learned in the food blogging world, especially making international recipes as a white lady, is that people are very passionate about (laughs) their food. (laughs) And so you want to try to walk that line of being very respectful and honoring of the meals that you're making and not appropriating the food that you're putting out into the world, but really appreciating it and highlighting the story behind it and why that particular dish was significant to them. And I feel like that kind of takes the intimidation away. Because when you learn that they cooked this particular curry because at that time they didn't have a lot of resources. And so this is what they could scrape together. And they were so resourceful with this spice and that spice to make this particular dish. It's like, 
man, we all feel that way sometimes where we're just trying to pull ingredients together to make something delicious. And I don't know, it just, I think the stories are what really inspire me to get creative with international food. I couldn't agree more. Well, if you don't have a friend for you listeners, find a blog that you trust that looks interesting like Jamil Gar. Follow a blog and don't be afraid to try and experiment. The worst thing that happens is it sucks and you pull a frozen pizza out of the freezer. It's not the end of the world. It's an experiment. And even bad food creates stories. Yes. And I've failed a ton cooking international cuisine. I mean, the good thing is the first time you try it, you have no idea what it's supposed to taste like. So you don't know if you failed or not. That's true. Usually <laughs> I have tried it before I attempt to cook it because I want to know what it does taste like. So I yeah. guess I've hit the mark or not. Yeah. Well, you um, have an inn in your house to help you do that, which is one beautiful. of the things I made recently that I failed really bad at. I can't even remember what they're called, but they're like those cheesy breads from Brazil. Oh, the little Brazilian cheesy breads? Yeah, they're not yeah. easy. No, I made them and they came out so horrific. So <laughs> even I try things and they fail miserably. So if I have a Brazilian friend that's listening, come teach me. But yes, we do have a lot of international recipes on our blog. And if you're interested, I'm a big proponent of sharing resources. So I know a lot of bloggers from different cultures who specialize in like Chinese food, Korean cuisine that I would love to send you their blogs as well, because They've been a wealth of knowledge and resources for me too. So Jamil Gar does have a lot of recipes, but I have a lot of other food blogging friends that I can get people connected to. So, all right. Well, tell everybody where they can follow you and where you hang out. Like how should they best get in touch with you? Is it just following your blog? And yeah, I think the other question I had for you is, as a food blogger and recipe developer, what are your goals for this podcast? What's the impact you hope to make in the culinary world? What's your last thoughts you want to leave us with besides where to follow you? So yeah, I'll answer the question first and then I'll tell you guys where to follow me. I think, like I said, obviously it does help me to get people to come to my blog. (laughs) So there is a business angle, obviously, to to coming on blogs and share or coming on podcasts and sharing. But beyond that, I don't want people to just come to my blog and, and make my recipes, which like, I know that that's what people do. I do that. Also, you print out the recipe. You don't interact with it that much. But when you come to Jamil Gar, like I want you to get the feeling that every meal that I've posted on there has been eaten by somebody in my world. It's been shared at my table it's been laughed over. It's been on occasion fought over. And I've brought some of these meals to my neighbors because I made too much. My cul-de-sac loves me being a food blogger because they just really benefit from the leftovers. But yeah, that I think is, I, I want people to get a feeling of home when they come to Jamil Gar, which goes along with the name. Like I want you to feel like you're a part of the Jamil Gar community and really feel like you do have a seat at the table. And I know that's so corny and I'm sure that food bloggers all say that, but I I really do feel that way. I'm not just like mass producing recipes just to make Google love me, although I wish it would love me more. (laughs) They are really meals that I've shared with my family and my friends and hopefully with your listeners as well. Absolutely. All right. Well, to everybody else where they can find you and then We'll keep everyone posted on part two because I still have so many questions. 
Yeah. Definitely follow us on the blog, jamilgar.com and check the show notes for spelling because it is an interesting spelling. (laughs) And then I'm also on social media. I'm on Instagram, Facebook. I post a lot of my recipes on Whisk. If you guys are familiar with that, it's a popular recipe sharing website. And then if you visit our blog, there is an option to subscribe. And I do have a newsletter where I share sometimes tips and tricks. Sometimes I notice that an Instant Pot's going on sale and that's really a useful tool for me. I'll send out a link and say, hey, buy this while it's on sale. But I do share recipes for upcoming events, things that might be coming up in my world, things that are coming up, you know, holidays, stuff like that. Jamilgar is probably the best way to find me. And I'm always ready for emails and messages through that as well. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. I can't wait to chat with you again. And really thank you for sharing your heart and your passion for what you're doing with everyone who's listening. It really comes through in your voice and what you do. And I really feel like we can heal the world one meal at a time. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Talk to you soon. See ya. Thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please go hit that follow button, subscribe, leave us a review. And if you're ready to change what mealtime looks like for you, breaking that cycle of chaos and having more fun in the kitchen, build some confidence and discover your love of cooking, schedule your free Dish with Trish call at the link in the show notes. We'll chat a few minutes and you'll walk away with personalized strategies to take your mealtime routine from tired to inspired. See you next time.